Hello and welcome to episode 3 in season 5 of the Ebb and Flow podcast with Solomon Ezra. In this new season, we're focusing on holistic wellness and Hasidic Jewish wisdom so we can each thrive in body, mind, and soul. If you're new to this show or if you haven't seen it yet, a good place to start is the recent YouTube video or podcast trailer entitled Ebb and Flow, Holistic Hasidic Health. In that video or audio, you will hear all about this new season, who it's for, my newsletter that comes out every Friday, and coaching services. My guest today is Barack Holman, a storyteller, writer, marketer, and entrepreneur. He moved to Jerusalem, Israel in 1995 to study for a PhD in Islamic studies, where he met his wife and began more of his creative pursuits. He is the author of two books and a third one on the way. One is called Figure It Out When You Get There. The second is called A Shtikl Shalom about his mentor, Shalom Brat. He also hosts two entertaining podcasts, one called Hasidic Story Project, which is what we talk about today, and Jewish People and Ideas. When Barack is not writing, he's usually cooking, throwing pottery, singing, telling stories, or planning his next project. I had the privilege and fortune of spending a Shabbat with him last summer in Jerusalem and really had a great time getting to meet him and his family. You can check out more about Barack Holman on his website, Barack holman.com that's b-a-r-a-k-h-u-l-l-m-a-n.com or check out his podcasts hasidic seat with a ch story project or jewish people and ideas please leave a review about today's uh, show and today's guest on apple Podcasts, and head over to solomonezra.com or follow me on instagram king underscore solomon eight or facebook solomon ezra Brezen to learn more and make sure to do something actionable today with your learnings and be sure to let us know via message or social media now onto the show with barack holman i'm here today with barack holman how are you doing today Baruch hashem never been better Awesome. Thank you for, for um, taking the time to speak with me on my new season as one of my first few guests getting back in it and merging merging my passions of uh, holistic health and uh, Hasidic Jewish philosophy. And one of the things that really I'm just grown into becoming more passionate about is learning Hasidic stories. And that was my first real um, introduction, I think, to to, to, to learning about yourself and hearing your, your stories from the Hasidic Story Project, as my brother Jonathan uh, told me about it. But there's so much more that you do, and it's awesome stuff, including your author of two books. I think two, not more. Two, a third two, on the way. Two, a third on the yeah. way. Uh, good luck. Yeah, that's not the shame. And um, the other podcast is Jewish People and Ideas. Right. And uh, just to get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what led to these creative pursuits. So the creative pursuits, that's just my nature. I spent years working as a computer programmer, literally what they call a code monkey. And even though I have the intelligence to do programming, there was no creative channels there. And Basically, it, you know, I remember hearing a quote, I don't know if it was from Van Gogh or not, but one of the famous artists who said, I don't paint because I want to, I paint because I have to. And my creative pursuits are not necessarily because I want to, they're really because I have to. And so what I learned over the years is that I have to do what I have to do to support my family, to pay the bills. 
But actually, I came up with a, an idea recently when I on Shabbos, I was walking home. It was in the rain here in Jerusalem. And I'm thinking, how do I introduce my new book to the podcast when the book is ready? So everybody knows that you have to do something for a living. You know, you got to work, get an inheritance, win the lottery, whatever it is, something for a living. But what I do, the books and the podcasts, they're for living without the A. Nice. Those are the things that I do for living. I do what I have to for a living, but that's what I do for a living. So that's where all the creative stuff comes from. And my background, so I grew up in a very religious reform home, which seems like an oxymoron. Whenever I say that exactly, see the laugh, nobody understands it. They're like, there's no such thing as re religious reform. So my mother, if she was an Orthodox Jew, she would be a very serious halachic Orthodox Jew. She happens to be a Reformed Jew and a very committed Reformed Jew. So she made sure that my brother and I were in the Reformed Temple every Friday night, every Shabbos morning, every holiday. And she would take us out of school for the holidays that other kids didn't even know were holidays. So she took us once out of school for Shmini Atzeret. And I said to my mother, what is Shmini Atzeret? And she said, I don't know, but it's a Jewish holiday and you're going to temple. So that's what I call like a religious reform upbringing, which brought me to really, I would say it was a sidewards move and not necessarily an up or a down move that I was looking for more. And when I was a teenager, I started asking questions to the reform rabbi. I didn't like the answers he gave me. I ended up in the Chabad house. I actually didn't like the Chabad house, but then I went to college at Rutgers in New Jersey. I grew up in North Miami Beach, so I went up north, which was very exciting. And there, when I got to the Chabad house, I found my home and connected with Chabad and eventually found other teachers along the way till I found my main mashpia, my main teacher, Reb Shalom Brat, who I wrote a book about. And that's what really led me to becoming a chassid. What was it that, and from the first like kind of experience of Chabad that changed that when, when you went to college, something uh, triggered more of a passion? So the reform rabbi said to me, whatever you do, do not walk into the Chabad house. He basically, I didn't know anything about taking oaths back then, but he basically made me take an oath. He said, you swear on your mother's life and your father's life, you'll never go into the, the Chabad house. So I said, of course, why would I ever go into the Chabad house? I'm a reformed Jew, I'm gonna go to Hillel. I went to Hillel, I went to the reform service, I didn't like it. I went to the conservative service, I didn't understand what was going on. I went to the Orthodox service, just so I can say that I went. I didn't like it, it was cold. I didn't find my place there. I was, I felt completely out of place. And here I am in a, basically a foreign student. When Rutgers, even though it could have been, I was in Rutgers College, which is like the Ivy League tiny little liberal arts college in this huge Rutgers University. And I thought I was heading for a, a Princeton experience, but I didn't realize that there are gonna be 50,000 students on campus and everybody's from New Jersey. And when you come there from Miami, they say, are you out of your mind? What are you doing here in New Jersey? This is the armpit of America. We would kill to go to Miami and you're coming here? So everybody would go home on Shabbos and everybody had friends from high school and here I am completely out of place. I can't find my place. And I walked into the Chabad house and the rabbi says, Shalom Aleichem, and gives me a big hug. He says, what's your name? Where do you live? Come, 
come to my house for Friday night. And I'm like, that's it. I'm never leaving. I came back to the Reformed Temple and the rabbi said, so what happened? And I told him and he said, I told you not to go there. But that was it. That was the beginning of the end. I'm, I wonder why it's so like warned against not to go in there. But that could be another. Well, he knew he wanted me to stay in the reform movement. And he knew that if I found something else, I would leave. Interesting. So you, you, you mentioned you, you got into learning at the, the Chabad house, just learning more about uh, Judaism and, and, and celebrating Shabbat. How did you come across the, the uh, mentor? And uh, can you share a, few, a little bit about who Shalom Brat was and what inspired you to, read, uh, to write that first book? Or that, uh, was that your first book or? The second book, the second book. So um, you, you lost me in the question, but how did I, what, was, what did I find in Chabad and how well, did how, I end like up with? What, when you were, you, you got there, you had a warm welcome. You made your way into um, learning more about um, Orthodox practicing, uh, got into observing Shabbat or celebrate. I like to say celebrating Shabbat. Then, how did that transition to you came across this mentor that had a, a profound, uh, okay. a crown, so there was influence on your life? A long distance between between the two because uh, okay. I. What happened was I was a terrible student in high school. All, I barely graduated high school. All of my friends went off to Harvard, the, the Marines or someplace. And I'm stuck at home in community college. And then I realized I'm an intelligent person. I just applied myself. I did very well, transferred to Rutgers. And um, I basically saw that I was successful in an academic track. So that led me to a year in Scotland where I studied Arabic and Islam. That was the subject I was studying. I came back to Rutgers and then spent a year on a kibbutz and then got into Princeton for graduate school. And there I met a professor from the Hebrew U, Professor Yochanan Friedman, who recently won the Israel Prize. And um, he brought me back to Israel, recruited me to the Hebrew University to be the editor of the Islamic Studies Journal. And I spent many years studying for a PhD at the Hebrew U. And I ended up, um, I met my wife there. My wife is Israeli. And we moved to Nachlaot basically because she said, where do you want to live? And I like to cook. So I wanted to live next to the Shuk, next to the open market in Jerusalem. And we ended up part of the Nachlaot community. The only thing that was lacking for me is there were no English speakers. And now Nachlaot is a big English speaking community. But when I moved there, there was barely anyone. There might've been two or three people that spoke English. And after about a year of living in Nachlaot, somebody said, hey, there's a, a Chabad community, an English-speaking Chabad community called Mayanot, opening up. And I went there, and um, there were a few people there. And one of the, the interesting characters was Reb Shalom Brat, who was originally, I think he was born in Poland, but he grew up in Montreal. And he was a very close follower, follower of uh, Reb Shlomo Karlibach. And he got his smicha, became a rabbi through Reb Shlomo. And he really saw himself as a chassid of Reb Shlomo. Although Reb Shalom grew up Chabad, but not in a Chabad home. He was sent to Chabad Yeshiva. So he had this mix of Shlomo and Chabad. And it was probably around 1998, 1999. I'm learning in Pirkei Avot, in the ethics of our fathers, and it says, 
I don't remember if the order is one way or the other. That you need to acquire a rabbi for yourself. You need to acquire a friend and you need to make a rabbi for yourself. That's what it says. Acquire a friend and make a rabbi for yourself. So I'm reading it. It says, you have to make a rabbi for yourself. So I actually wrote to, to uh, what's his name? Zalman Shechter Shalomi. Who's, who started the renewal movement. And he was Reb Shlomo Karabach's like right-hand man. man. The two of them were very close to Chabad. They were close to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I wrote to him, he was in, I think, Boulder, somewhere in Colorado at the time. And he said to me, I wrote him this whole long letter. I want you to be my rabbi. And he said, what are you writing to me for? You live in Achlaot. Shalom Brat is there. Go to Shalom Brat. So I go and I knock on Shalom's door, and I knew him from my note, but I didn't know him so well. And I said, Reb Shalom, I want to be um, your student. I want you to be my rabbi. And I wrote all the stories that I have with me and Reb Shalom, I wrote in this book, like everything I could remember. So this is in the book. And he says to me, first of all, you don't call me rabbi. My name is Shalom. Second of all, I'm not going to be your rabbi. I'm not going to be anyone's rabbi. So I'm not interested in this whole little thing that you're setting up here. However, I'll make you a deal. I need a friend. You be my friend and I'll be your friend and we'll help each other out. How does that sound to you? Nice. So I didn't care. I just wanted him to be my rabbi. So I said, well, fine, whatever you say, rabbi. It's like, okay, um, I have a class on Wednesday nights. Come to my Parsha class. So I said, no, but I need some one-on-one -on -one time with you. I mean, how am I, how am I supposed to be a student and you're the rabbi if we're not learning together like one-on-one? -on -one? So it's Shabbos morning, seven o'clock. So I said, Chavez morning seven, that's the only time I can sleep in. He's like, take it or leave it. So I took it. And for about 20 years till he passed away, wow. uh, we learned together every Shabbos morning. We learned together oftentimes other times besides Shabbos morning. And we became very, very close friends. And I completely opened myself up to him. I allowed him to go into my brain and my heart and do anything he wanted and completely trusted him. And he ripped me to pieces. I would leave his house sometimes in tears. I would tell my wife, what am I doing? This guy is crazy. But what he was doing was molding me. He was turning me into the person that he knew that I could be. And he wasn't going to have any patience or for dilly-dallying around. He was just yeah. going to get to what he had to do and do it. I know you you probably write a lot about it in the book as well, but I kind of want to dive into that, given given that um, my, my podcast is aimed around health and holistic health, and a lot of that goes into really trans, transforming one's character traits or mitos, we say. It sounds like he was really helping you out, just refine yourself can you t talk a, a little bit more about what exactly like in addition to the learning it, it sounds like it was a, a, not just a great friendship or a, a teacher student relationship but almost like you could uh, say sounds like somebody who has a, a coach or a, a psychologist like yeah absolutely way. it was a spiritual trainer you could say see what happened was we would learn and then i would ask him questions Sometimes he would ignore the questions because he'd say, it's not relevant. Let's just keep learning. <laughs> other times he pretend he didn't hear me, even though we're sitting one right next to the other. 
And then, you know, I would say to him, listen, can we stop for a second? I need to ask you something. My son, he keeps getting kicked out of school. What do you think I should do? My wife, we're not getting along. What do you think I should do? I want to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. The rabbi isn't asking me, what do you think I should do? Whatever I would ask him, he would give me an answer. And over time, he would, he, he would like continue working on the same areas again and again. You know, kind of like, I know I used to play the French horn. And when you would practice, so the teacher said, don't always just practice the passages you don't know, practice the ones that you do know. Hmm. And you keep working on these passages again and again and again. That's what he was doing. He would take like some part of my ego, my personality and work on it again and again and again and again until it really completely changed. That's nice. Like it, you just kept rehearsing in a sense, a certain aspect, like it sounds like he was, what I've learned like in uh, things like with meditation, you become aware of a certain aspect of yourself that you want to uh, change. And, you know, the more and more you can, you have that awareness of, let's say you have a, an aspect of yourself that gets worried about something or is insecure. And you see all the ways, like if you look at it like a tree, all the ways that it branches out and, and manifests as this thought or this worry, whatever the case may be. And the way to really kind of uproot that is to become aware of all the different ways that it shows up and then ultimately re, like rewire, neurologically speaking, all the ways for it to now change. And so it sounds like he was really kind of doing a process of, like, of that with you, which is really cool. Yeah, he was doing it and he was doing what I couldn't see myself. Mm. Sounds like a great uh, teacher and... Yeah, sure it, was a, it was a great gift, a great gift to have. Him you're continuing to, to share a lot of he, a lot of the messages and insights that he has shared with you into all the, the work that you've, you are doing. So with that, I'd love to transition now to uh, a little bit about the, your other book, the first book, figure it out when you, when you get there. Yeah. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that and, uh, so that was really, that was the book that I had to write. You know, the book about Shalom was the book that I didn't want to write. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't think I was ever going to write a book about him. And I didn't think he was going to pass away when he did. He ended up dying at 69. And um, the first book, however, I started writing when I was 42. So now, despite my white hair and however I look, I'm 50 years old. You know, some people are like, you're 50, you look like 100. Uh, you know that's how it goes you've sometimes had quite a, you've had quite a uh, a great past eight years uh, <laughs> creative wise anyhow so looks aside when i uh, eight years ago when i was 42 it was really on my birthday i felt i had my midlife crisis i don't know if that means i'm going to live to 84 but it, it felt like okay you know i had Hashem, the i know seven kids at the time I was able to support my family for many years. I kind of had a stable life and a very good life, a, um, a purpose-filled life. You know, that I just mentioned that as a side note, that's what makes my life good. Besides all the blessings that Hashem has sent me, really a wonderful wife that I couldn't have asked for more and beautiful children, Bo Hashem, and everything that I have, 
the reason that I really have a good life is because I live a purpose-driven life. And that drive brought me to write the first book. So I, it was so strong inside of me that I didn't even know what I was going to write. I just took a, a laptop. I went to a cafe. I told my wife, I'm going and I don't know when I'm going to be home. Like I'll be home tonight, but I don't know how many hours I'll be there. I probably wrote for five or six hours. I didn't use anything that I wrote that day. Everything got trashed. And I brought it home. I showed it to my wife and like, what do you think? So my idea was to write a book on the meaning of life. You know, that's what everybody wants to know. What's the meaning of life? I wanted to know myself and like leave some legacy to my children. And she said it was pompous and arrogant and nobody would ever want to read this. But I had used some small stories to give examples of what I wanted to say. And she said, why don't you just make a book of stories? Leave out all the other stuff that you want to write. Just give the stories. So in Seinfeld, there was a great advice. Well, yeah, she's a good wife. She's also an author. She's also an author. Yeah. You know, I, it, she wrote an amazing book. It's in Hebrew currently. Um, but I think she saw that I keep knocking out book, books and she's like, okay, I can write a book. <laughs> and I kept encouraging her to write a book as well. Um, boy, I lost my, it's the, you know, here it's the end of the day. So it's evening. So I'm a little tired. What was I saying about the book? All right. So Seinfeld, there's an episode called Muffin Tops. I don't know if that's what it's called, but they were selling muffin tops. And the idea was that everybody just likes the top of the muffin. They don't eat the base. So why don't we just make muffin tops? And that was the idea for the book. Why don't I just write the stories that everybody else would enjoy reading and leave out all the other stuff and you'll get it. Like all the other stuff I wanted to say would be in the stories, so you'll get it. And now that I'm on the third book, I'm now going through like, I think hopefully the last time I'm editing it, um, I'm cutting out more and more. That's all I do at this point is I just cut cut, 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 because it's hidden there in the story. I don't have to say it. As long as it, it, the intention was there and I wrote the story right, you will get it when you read the story. It's a powerful insight. Given when you were saying you, you growing up you, and you had a lot of experiences, it sounds like, you know, with going to the Chabad when you were studying, where of course, I'm, I'm sure you learned a lot about you know, life and purpose, then you've had a wonderful mentor and all the different studies and the family. You said you were living a purpose-driven life. Now, then you experienced a little bit of a midlife crisis in your words. How, what, what was that a little bit about and how would you look back at, and, and give guidance on somebody, let's say in their 20s, that it also was kind of like yourself in your 20s, that even though you were kind of doing purpose-related things or living a purpose-driven life, what advice would you give to, to help go through that experience? So, um, yeah. What's interesting is that I, I was, for a while I was teaching people internet marketing, which is how I currently make my living. And I I taught hundreds of people and very few people got it. And what I realized from that course, even though everybody was happy with the course, they they didn't learn how to make a living from it. 
is what I understand, what I learned is that what I understand doesn't necessarily work for everyone else. So I can tell you the advice that I give myself, but I don't know if it's general advice for everyone. I know I'm very clear that I'm going to die one day. I'm not going to live forever. And I'm very conscious of that. And I live my days like that. Now, not in a panic with anxiety, like, oh my God, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. Oh my God, I'm gonna die. I better eat everything and do everything before I die. That's not how I live. But it's this constant push. Like you feel like there's something happening. You need to take care of it. You know that, for example, we had this meeting. So I knew that at the end of the day, I have this coming and I have to get done all the work that I need to do because this extra hour that I normally have at the end of the day is gonna be dedicated for this. So the whole day had this kind of push, do this, do this, make sure you get it done on time, make sure you get it on time. That's my life. Cause now I know how long am I gonna live? This is, I've been playing this game since I was probably 30 years old, maybe younger. Will I live to 40? Will I live to 50? Will I live to 60? Will I live to 70? Will I live to 80? Let's say I live to 80. What quality life am I gonna have? What if I'm 90? I mean, how much can I practically do at 90? 100? I'm practically dead at 100. There's like nothing left at 100. Okay, so how much time do I really have left? Well, Shalom died when he was 69. Now I'm 50. That means I have 19 years to go. 19 years. What can I do in 19 years? What do I have to get done? And that's what I say, but I can say it to myself and not stress out and not be like a wreck, not need to drink and smoke all the time. I, that is an inspiration for me. That's my push. So it's so it's more in a uh, enthusiastic way, like, oh my gosh, I may have this many years. What all? What are all the things that I can accomplish in this much yes. time? Rather yes. than oh my god, I only. Which and is get it done. Shift. Get it done. And don't you, delay. Don't yeah. waste time because you don't have the time. It's it's a powerful shift for sure, and I you said it may just be helpful for your like yourself and everything's individual but i i do think that's a general um teaching and everybody could really adopt because it's really like the 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 on the surface like the however many years doesn't change like it's still let's say 10 years but how you're approaching it, it that's that's the biggest switch you know, and, and however we can look at um, something in a more of that enthusiastic way, that's what will bring it about. I have this idea yeah. that people, many people are scared of dying, especially now with COVID. The people are left and right. I, I wasn't one of them because I, I live my life. If I died tomorrow, I would be sorry for the sadness that I be, leave behind for my family but I would be very happy with what I've done in my lifetime because I didn't leave things. And I think that's the fear that people have. They're not actually scared of dying because every single person knows they're gonna die. Nobody's lived for more than however many years. Nobody, everybody does. Nobody's scared of dying. Everyone's scared of leaving this world without fulfilling their purpose. Mm. And they might know it, not know it on a conscious level, but they know it on a soul level. And their soul is telling them, hey man, you better get done what you gotta do in this world before you leave, or what was the point of you being alive? And that's the fear of death that people have. It's not the fear of, of really dying. It's the fear of not doing what you, you could have done in this world. 
<laughs> Drinking moment. Yeah. Chaim. Chaim. How would you recommend, uh, how would you inspire others to find that purpose, to realize their purpose? Because I can person- say what I did. I don't know how I can tell other people to do it. I'm sure there are people out there. Um, my wife is very into all kinds of uh, alternative stuff, um, like EFT tapping, this type of thing, the work of Byron Katie. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, this other woman. That explains why we, we got along when I was at your home for Shabbat. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so <laughs> being her husband, you know, she tells me, you better tap. You Come, let's do the work. I'm like, oh, God, I don't like to do this stuff. I don't want to do anything. She's like, let's go, let's go. We're complete opposite. So one of the things she ha- she came across was this passion test. I don't mm-hmm. even remember who it was from. No, I have that as well. Um, go on, but I, I have to okay. remind myself. So <laughs> she did the passion test with me, which is basically you list the things that all of the areas and uh, hobbies you do in areas of interest, and then you narrow them down and narrow them down and narrow them down. And then you figure out, okay, what is the thing that I really want to be doing? It was so, Jim Atwood. Sorry, I have uh, it. Oh yeah, that's it. That's I it. I have it in my notes because I really enjoyed that activity, and I'm so happy you. Janet Atwood you so reminded me of it. The two that of them for really a while great. had a personal connection. Janet came over here. Noga made a connection with her, and wow, they, really? they were really, yeah, they were like you really going back and forth for a while. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So I, I, I don't. Wife, I have to have your wife on this podcast. Oh yeah, she's, she'll be fascinating. I guarantee. And she loves the media. Oh my god, this is awesome. She's she, my wife here in Israel is on the radio pretty much every week. Wow, like national big time radio, and she loves it. Put her on TV. She loves it. Me, this is the first podcast I've ever been on besides my own. Wow. Well, thank Anyhow. you. So she did the passion test with me. And, and then I, I said, okay, I want to be doing podcasts and writing books and teaching. So I have a, a lesson in the Kutay Moran, the collected teachings of Rabbi Nachman that I teach every week. I've been teaching it for almost six years now. So in the classes I um, came to. You came to my class, yeah. So I have them all on, uh, m- mainly on Facebook. I have to move them over to YouTube. It's around 300 classes. I was telling my kids the other day, you realize oh, I have 300 recorded classes. and like, what? How could that be? Six times five. I do it almost every week. I barely skip a, cla- a, a, a week. So, you know, these are things that I wanted to do and I right. just do them. Consistency, you know, that's really my gift. Everybody has a, a little gift. That's my gift. I'm able to put myself on the path and I stay there no matter what. As long as it's something that I really want to be doing, I never leave. That's awesome. So like, I'm the guy who starts the minion every morning in shul for 20 years now, always, because I'm the one who's there every morning for 20 years and no one else can be relied upon to be there every morning. And I'm, I have a podcast of Hasidic stories at this point, this week I put up story 153. So I had COVID and my family had COVID over Sukkot. And I was just sick in bed. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't come to my office here and record the story. This woman in North Carolina who listens to the podcast, she sends me a message on Facebook. You're either sick or dead. 
because you are so loyal to this podcast. You never skip a week. There's no way you skipped a week without putting out the podcast. I'm very concerned. So I told her, I was like laying in bed on my phone like this. Said, I'm sick in bed. As soon as I'm healthy, first thing I'm going to do is record a story. And that's the first thing I did. I jumped out of bed when I could. It was five days later when I recorded the story. So figuring out what you're passionate about and then doing it again and again and again. And even if nobody listens and even if nobody reads your books, I write books. I hope the whole world will read them, but I write them even if nobody ever reads a single page. I'm not writing it for them. I'm writing it for me. That's powerful. And I'm so happy you reminded me of that test because that helped helped me out a lot uh, maybe over a year ago. Uh, it's, it's an enjoyable uh, activity, especially she even Janet Atwood even recommends doing it with somebody else. So the fact that you did that with your wife that's awesome. And I think that I'll even she did it with me. Well, she'll do she did it with <laughs> yeah. me. But she, I'm saying she, I give her all the credit because somebody will do it with their, you know, um, with their partner. I'll, I'll definitely look forward to doing that with my future wife. And, uh, you know, just to just to sit down, like even around Rosh Hashanah, New Year's time to to do those passion tests and to create a vision together. I think that's very powerful just to align and get on the same basis or ever you you look out for each other um now transitioning to the hasidic story project mm -hmm. um, first of all actually i'm i'm inspired by that consistency and in, in my podcast myself i have taken some breaks whether it's when i'd gone to like a meditation retreat or uh to study in my note over the summer when i met you i was on a little bit of a break and uh, so it's definitely inspiring that you've been able to keep that up and, and just shows that you have a fan that's also so loyal to. Um, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. What, <clears throat> so the Hasidic Story Project podcast, you share different stories. By the way, I, I really enjoyed listening, it, listening to it by like Malava Malka, which is the meal after, uh, after Shabbat ends. But um, before we get to it, I'd love to hear perhaps you have one of your favorite stories or one that just comes to mind that you can share um, on here. Uh, there, there's no question what my favorite story is. Okay, great. It's actually what's so interesting. I mean, there are favorite stories. And then I, I think this, I don't know. There's a lot of favorite stories. This one I'll, I'll always choose. It's written by Aleph Lamed Peretz who was the number one Yiddish author that I guarantee you most American Jews have never heard of, which is so amazing. There were probably 10 million people in Europe reading his, his books. Like everyone who spoke Yiddish was reading his books before the war. You ask American Jews, name three concentration camps, and they'll tell you Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald. You know, they'll come up or Mauthausen, they'll know the names of these concentration camps. But will they know the names of the most famous Yiddish authors? Probably not. Anyhow, this guy, I.L. Peretz, stuff is all translated to English. He has this story called If Not Higher. And it's, I believe it's a fictional Hasidic story. But you know the, the quote, I don't remember who it's from, the original Rebbe, um, I'm not sure which Rebbe says it. They're all given credit for it at some point, that anyone who believes all the stories in their purest form is a fool. And anyone who doesn't believe them has a heart of stone. It's kind of like that, you know, 
half-half thing and find yourself in the middle, which is true because as a connoisseur of these stories, I have, I've collected thousands of them and I read many of them until I find the ones that I'm gonna tell on the podcast, you come across the same story again and again with different Rebbe's, different characters and similar circumstances, but not exactly the same. One was a woodcutter, the other was a water carrier. And you realize it's the same story that's being recycled and just given different credit. So in that sense, um, they're all kind of made up, but they're all true. And this story as well. So this is called If Not Higher, and I'll just give you the very short version. There's a guy who's a misnagid, who's, who opposes the Hasidim. So just for background, the Hasidic movement was like a radical movement at the time. Before the Baal Shem Tov came around in the, the late 1600s, I think it was 1680, um, or let's say early 1700s when he really had his influence. So there was just the standard way of, of living Jewish life. We have the Shulchan Aruch. We know the law that we're supposed to follow. You have a question, go ask the rabbi. Otherwise, just live your life. And here comes the Baal Shem Tov, and he says, hang on. What's missing here is joy. We need to bring joy back to Judaism. And people are like, what are you talking about joy? That has nothing to do with Judaism. He said, I guarantee you the woodchopper who can't even recite the Psalms by heart, doesn't even know how to read. He's on a higher level than the greatest rabbi when he dances on Simchat Torah. And people were like, this is crazy. This is not Judaism. Now this clash between the, Has the Hasidim and the Misnagdim continued all the way up until the reform movement. When the reform movement came, like Hasidim, that's not a problem. This is a problem. <laughs> So that was like pushed aside very quickly, but there's still the idea of the people that oppose the Hasidim or the Misnagdim and the Hasidim or, you know, there's all kinds of jokes about the Hasidim, about being happy and not caring about Torah and all of that. So there's a Misnagid, there's a guy who comes to Nimenov. So Nimenov is actually where Reb Nassin, who was Rebbe Nachman's top student and wrote all of Rebbe Nachman's books, and expanded on the library, he lived in Nimenov. And so the story is in Nimenov, there's a Nimenov Rebbe. And this Misnagid comes Erev Slichot. Slichot is the, the time when we're saying special prayers before Rosh Hashanah to prepare ourselves for the big day of uh, when we're going to stand before Hashem and be judged and ask for forgiveness. And so, um, he comes during Slichot, which starts the first night, at usually around 12 or 12.30 at night. And he comes in the morning, he says, where's the Rebbe? And the Hasidim are like, our Rebbe, he's not here because he's in heaven. It's like, what are you talking about he's in heaven? Like, our Rebbe, he's like, you know, the real thing. He goes so high during Slichot, he can't be here physically in this world. So this guy, he's a misnagid. He says, you, you Hasidim are crazy. I don't believe any of your nonsense. The next morning, he goes and sleeps next to the Rebbe's house, under his bed, whatever it was, the room next door. The Rebbe gets up early in the morning, you know, four in the morning. He hears the Rebbe getting up. He sees the Rebbe not getting dressed in Rebbe clothes, but getting dressed as a woodchopper. And not just a woodchopper, he looks like a goy. He puts on the same hat that the, the non-Jewish woodchopper has and the boots and has a sack and an axe and rope and everything. And he walks out the door and the Misnagid follows him at a distance. He follows him deep into the forest, sees the Rebbe cutting down trees, 
chopping them into pieces of wood, tying them up. And he goes to this old woman's house, knocks on the door. And the woman says, what do you want? Said, it's me, it's Ivan. I'm here with your wood. She says, Ivan, I don't know who's Ivan and I can't afford to buy any wood. Get out of here. He says, I'm coming in. He opens the door, he comes in, this old lady, she's in bed. She's like, it's freezing and I'm exhausted and I don't have any patience for you. Get out of here, what are you, a thief? He's like, no, I'm Ivan the woodchopper. I'm here, I brought your wood. She's like, I don't have any money, can't afford to pay you. He said, you're a Jew, right? She said, yeah. He said, you have a God, right? She said, yeah. He said, so pray to your God. Your God will give you the money. Don't worry, I'm gonna put the wood in the fireplace. I'm gonna build a fire for you. He builds a fire, he warms up the house. He covers the woman with a blanket. She's exhausted, she falls asleep. And then he opens up his little book of Slichot and starts davening. And the whole time the Misnagid is watching this from the window. The next year, Slichot comes around. And now the Misnagid, he's a chassid of the Nimanova Rebbe. And when somebody comes in the shul and says, where's the Rebbe, where's the Rebbe? And the chassidim, they all say, <laughs> Rebbe, he can't be in this world, he's in heaven. And this Misnagid, who's now a chassid, he said, he's not just in heaven, he's even higher than heaven, if not higher than heaven. That's sweet. One of my favorite stories. It's got like everything in it. Wow. Wow. It's, uh, it's interesting, you, you brought up that it was, you said it was told by Nassan, the student of the no, this so this supposedly is a fictional story. It might it might not be, and yeah. that's the same thing with all the stories. I had I had what, recently. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Whether whether it's fictional or not is not even the point. The point is what you learn from it and what you get yeah. from it. The change that occurs through it. Yeah, well, go ahead. I I had started learning with a close friend. Um, I'm not too familiar with much of uh, Rebbe Nachman's work, but I have a, like a bridged version of the Lukute Torah, which I flip through every now and then. Um, but we started learning a book, like a, a book of commentary, I think, or like a deep insights on about the lost princess. All right, so the stories. The story of the lost princess by Rebbe Nachman. And uh, wow, it's very powerful. And it's like so specific and it, it just, it seems to leave you with like a, not a cliffhanger, but like a, just a punctual kind of ending. Yeah, well, Rabbi Nachman's stories were not really stories. They were the deepest Torahs hidden in the stories. Yeah. Which is the inspiration for my books as well. You know, that's what I'm trying to do. Of course, I don't compare myself to Rabbi Nachman. Not even scratching his toenails, nothing close to him. It's still... but, the, but it's an inspiration. You know, that Rabbi Nachman says, I'm going to hide the greatest secrets in stories. So that's what I try to do as well, whether it's the Hasidic stories or writing my books. How do you, how, where do you read and come across these different uh, stories? Uh, I've got piles. I mean, I could show you here. This is just right There's next to me. with different, just stories? Look, this is just, oh, well, you can't it's, see it because it's, it's, it's blurring it. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, it's blurring my pile. Okay, anyhow, that's just a pile sitting next to me. I've got books and newsletters, and over there I've got an even bigger pile, and at home I have an even bigger pile. I just collect them. I For years I was obsessively reading stories. I just loved them. Everything. Yeah. 
you know, Hasidic stories. And then what, what happened was, I'll tell you the story of how I started the podcast. I went to the Shalom Hartman Institute here in Jerusalem. So I don't know if you know the Shalom Hartman Institute in America, they're very influential. I would say they're the largest um, influent educational institute. Like they have the greatest influence over non-Orthodox Jews. They have an impact. And here in Israel, they also have somewhat of an impact, but not as big. So they happen to have an enormous institute um, in Baca, in this beautiful neighborhood. And I was walking by one day and I saw it and I was like, what is that? It's the Shalom Hartman Institute. And eventually I worked my way in there. It's a whole long story. I actually mentioned it in my next book, but I had a meeting with Danielle Hartman, who's the son of David Hartman, who founded the, the institute, named it after his father. And I wanted to get in there. I wanted to be a teacher there. I wanted to, to work there. And he said to me, there's no way in the world we're ever going to let you in here. Because I'll just give you an idea. All the reform rabbis from North America come for the summer program at the Hartman Institute. So you want to go and speak in front of all the reform rabbis in America? Well, they all are here in the summer. And they're all hanging out in the Hartman Institute. So I said, yeah, that's where I want to be. I want to talk with them. I want to influence them. And they, you know, they wouldn't let me in. So in my meeting with Danielle, um, I said to him, I want a job here. What can you offer me? And he said, well, you tell me, we only hire the best of the best. What do you do better than anyone else in the whole world? And I told him, I tell Hasidic stories. And he said, well, we don't need that here. And then he sent me out of his office. <laughs> and I called my wife and I said, you know what? I'm going to start a Hasidic story podcast. And it was thanks to Danielle Hartman, of all people, he doesn't even answer my emails, so he won't know this, but he gets credit for giving me the inspiration to start this podcast. Wow. From the rejection. Yeah. I have a friend who says, rejection is God's protection. Rejection is God's protection. And it's really true. You know, you get rejected. You think that's what I really wanted. That's what I really wanted. But it's really Hashem saying to you, no, it's not what you wanted or it's not the time for it right now. I think it goes uh, back or shows testament to the advice you said you would give to a younger person or your younger self in that really the mindset, that how you look at the different things like too, because you could just say from when he tells you no, you could just end it from end it like that. But the, the fact that you had an idea and turned to put it into a podcast, it's just a powerful, like it, you look at it as the rejection, just like you said, rejection is protection or no means next. And you, you know, you, you passionate about the telling, telling the stories. And I think I, I appreciate that as a, as a student, as a learner, and it's valuable to be able to hear and how to apply it and personalize it, how to, how to take those uh, adverse, in a way, adverse moments and really transform them. You've probably seen the toys in the mall that like, you know, they have like pieces of wood that make a square and that just hits a wall and keeps hitting a wall and keeps running. That's what, it, that's what happens. You, know, you hit a wall, you just keep going. You're going to turn, you're going to flip over. As long as you just keep going, just keep going. That's what I tell myself all the time. I like literally who, look at myself like in the who, mirror. Like I'll say, just keep going. Cheese. Even more than that, don't think, just do. Just go, 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 go. You'll figure things out as you go.
you figure it out as you get there. That's right. That's I love the title. I, I wish I could come up with such a good title for my next book. I don't know what the, what it's called yet. Awesome. Well, uh, I think I'd, I'd like to also ask a little bit about how you got into um, not just like Chabad teachings, but it expanded out in your your learning. It sounds like through the different stories of about the different rebbeim, but but you also um, the classes that you teach are all from the Rebbe Nachman, right? So how did you get introduced to and and interested so that's, in his teachings? As that's opposed to the, okay, as opposed to like from Rabbi Shneur Zalman, the Tanya, like. So first of all, Shalom was quoting Shlomo Karlbach. Who said everyone has two rebbies, their rebbe and Rebbe Nachman. So I said to Shalom, what does that mean? He said, that means that you need to be learning Rebbe Nachman. You know, we're going to learn Chabad Hasidis. That's what we learned for the most part. Hardcore, heavy duty Torah or the Kutei or the straightforward, no commentary text of the Alter Rebbe. Whenever there was something in Yiddish, we would learn it in Yiddish and he would translate it. It was like as close as we could get to the original we would. And um, <clears throat> then he said, are you learning the Kutei Moran? Like, I'd say, well, what do you mean? It's like, just get a copy and start learning. You got to learn. So I bought the whole set. There's a set in English of like 14 volumes. When the whole thing would be in one small volume, but this has enormous commentary, translation, everything. And I started learning. And I, I compare Chabad Hasidis and Breslov Hasidis. Chabad Hasidis is like architecture. It's a, it's a certain type of art. It's straight lines. Everything connects. It's logical. It's very fine and detailed. Breslov Hasidis is broad strokes. It's abstract painting. You still have art, different approaches. You basically have the same message. And all the Hasidic Rebbe's, they're all giving you the same message, but from different channels. We know the idea of shivim panim la Torah, that there are 70 faces of the Torah, meaning different ways of approaching the Torah. I once was in an argument with a reform rabbi who took that as a justification for the reform movement. I told him that I guarantee you that Moses, when he said that it wasn't, it wasn't, the, it wasn't his idea that there was going to be a reform movement. It means that somebody approaches it through Chabad Hasidis, someone finds it through Eshet Torah, somebody finds it through Breslev Hasidis. And it really doesn't matter. Uh, the groups become very loyal. So Breslav is very loyal to Breslav Hasidis. Chabad is very loyal to Chabad Hasidis. Um, me, I don't care. I'm looking for being connected to Hashem and living my fullest potential. If it comes from Chabad, it comes from there. If it comes to Breslav, it comes from there. So I found that Breslav Hasidis spoke to me in a way that Chabad Hasidis doesn't. Chabad Hasidis is very intellectual. It's true that you, you really take, just like you take a piece of herring, stick it on a cracker and eat it, you take a piece of Hasidus and stick it on the table and, and, and consume it. And when you consume Chabad Hasidus, it's like a heavy meal. When you get to the end, ah, it's very satisfying, but you gotta have a lot of patience to get there. Breslov is like little sugar cubes. Rabbi Nachman is like, here's one, and here's one, and here's one. Now let's take a little break. Oh, open your mouth, here's another one. And you're like, ah, sugar, give me more sugar, sugar. And this is breasts of Hasidus. It's like coming and coming and coming. And I've been learning it now since 2004. 
So that's close, I guess, almost 20 years or 17 years, whatever. It's been a long time of like really regular learning breast of Hasidus. I never get enough of it. I always discover new things that Rabbi Nachman says, new ways. And if somebody says to me, well, you're not a real Chabadnik if you study breast of Hasidus, I tell them, I, I don't care. I'm not interested in being a Chabadnik. I'm interested in being a Hasid. I'm a Hasid of Lubavitch Rebbe. You can't see if there's a picture of the Rebbe right over there. Hi, Rebbe. That's my Rebbe. And I even had a dream not so long ago where I was on a conveyor belt of Hasidim and they were being picked up and put into boxes and comes to me and the conveyor belt stops. He says, what do we do with this one? And the Rebbe pops up and he says, he's mine. Stick me in, his, in my box. That's so Lubavitch cool. Rebbe. So that's where my heart is in, in Lubavitch. It's, it's funny because Lubavitch is very intellectual. My mind is in Breslov, my heart is in Lubavitch. My mind is, say that in my mind is- My in, mind is in Breslov, even though normally people's minds are in Chabad uh -huh. because Chabad is so intellectual and yeah. Breslov is very emotional, but my heart is in Chabad. I've, I've heard that distinction a little bit before, but I don't know, I've, I've felt so, like the all the Chabad, uh, granted I haven't learned so much yet of other teachings, but the Hasidic Chabad, it's so, it resonates emotionally. It's just that the fact that, you know, sometimes you have an emotion and you, you can't like put a word to it. You like, you want to like, what is this that I'm feeling? Or there's something going on, I wanna like express it into words, but there's no, not often, not all the time. There's like something that um, you like, you want to be able to put into words, but, and sometimes it's beneficial not to, so just to like to, to experience it. But the language that like in the Tanya that he, that Rabbi Shneer Zaman of Liad uses or another Chabad Hasidus, it uses like this poetic language that like you can actually grasp part like intellectually. So to me, it's like emotional, but with that, um, like I can still like have a, I have a, a, um, a word or a, a label of sorts for for it. So I have to learn more about that. Yeah, you know, just like everything, if you studied music, you would know the differences between different musicians and the different ages and their different yeah. times that they were creating music. It's the same thing with this stuff. Mm -hmm. The deeper you get into the the more you understand it. I, I one lesson I took away when you were talking about the different Rubeim as as uh, different leaders, but also ultimately, you know, who cares? Kind of if they're all teaching kind of important stuff, the the goal is not to choose and follow a specific Rebbe, but because the, of how whoever um, whoever's teaching is resonates with you as far as leading to and um, and aligning with with God. That's you know what's it's yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's a Jewish um, story one time or um, analogy I learned um, before I think I heard it when I went to a retreat but you know if a bunch of fingers are pointing to the to the moon you're not going to look at the finger you're going to look at the moon so it's a, it's what is that what is that what does that mean I don't understand that well in in uh, 
it's an analogy. So obviously uh, that all the paths are leading to that place. That's what you're yeah. saying. Obviously it doesn't work. It, that, that analogy doesn't, what it used before is for, um, you know, all religions and spiritual things are leading to the path to the same path, which we know is not true. Um, but I was just applying it somewhat loosely to what you were talking about, how if all of the Rebbeim are teaching similar things, helping us ultimately align and live in alignment with, with God and Torah and mitzvot, that we can, we can get caught up with, oh, I have to be this, um, this uh, chassid of this Rebbe or that one. But ultimately, they're, like it says, I believe in the time of Mashiach, we're all come together with the different uh, rebbeim to to read the. Yeah, well, you're talking about different topics here. I mean, it's it's human nature to just want to be part of a group. So if somebody says we're Chabad and you want to be part of the group and you do what Chabad Hasidim do, then you feel like ah, oh, I'm doing it right. But we, you probably know the story of Rebzusha, Rebzusha of Hanapoli who was the brother of the, the great Rebbe, Rebbe Elimelech of the Zhengs. The two of them were very famous uh, Hasidic Rebbe's. So Reb Zusha was asked, Reb Zusha, are you worried about going to Olam Abba, the world to come? He said, no, nope, Reb Zusha is not worried about going to the, the world to come. But they're going to ask Reb Zusha, if they ask Reb Zusha, were you like Avraham Avinu? Were you like Avraham our father? Reb Zusha will say no. And they, were you like Moshe Rabbeinu? he say no. He said, Zusha is only worried about one thing, if they ask Zusha, were you like Zusha? And that's the, that's really what it is. Who cares what the label is? Yeah. I mean, get over the uniforms and the labels and all this. You are a neshama and you have to live up to your potential because when you get upstairs, they're not going to say, were you a Chabad Chassid? Were you a Breslov Chassid? Amen. They're going to Amen. say, were you... My Hebrew name is Abba Barak. Were you Abba Barak? Abba Barak ben Kalman Dober. Were you the person, the neshama that we stuck into that world? Now you can ask yourself, why does my neshama have to come into this world? If it's already in the supernal place up in heaven, so what does it have to come down here in a physical body for? So that I have temptations, so that I, I do things wrong, so that I can go to the mall, and have my coffee so that I can, you know, I mean, what, what is the point? And there is a point. The point is that if a person grows up in a home where everything is provided for them, their life is purposeless and meaningless because they never accomplished anything. And if the soul is up in heaven and it didn't have any challenges and never accomplished anything, it says, I'm worth nothing. I want the challenge to come into this world that God created. This world, which is called Helem, which is Hester, which is hiddenness. God is hidden in this world. I can say, I can say, I don't believe in God in this world. What does that mean? That means that God's presence is so hidden that even though God is keeping me alive, I can't stop my heart from beating, no matter how hard I try. I can't stop breathing forever. I don't have full free will to do everything I want in this world because there's a force. You can call it the energy of the universe, or you can call it God but it's here and it God created this world for us to come and be challenged and to take the challenge and to grow. And when we grow, we create a relationship with God, which helps us to become the person that God had in mind when he created the world. 
When he created the world, he had you in mind and he had me in mind. The whole world from the moment of its creation existed so that you and I could be here and face the challenges that we face in our life. And when we face them and then we reach our final day and the soul goes back up, it says, ah, I earned my keep. Now my soul has meaning and purpose. That's why we're here. So whether you choose Chabad Hasidus or Breslov Hasidus or however you do it, that is the goal. Amazing. I think that's a great, uh, a great conclusion for this episode. I just wanted to add, uh, when you were telling that uh, story of Reb Zusha, um, it reminded me, I, I, it might be the same story or different one or just a little twist, but somebody asked him like, would you switch places with, with Avraham Avinu? Like, would you be Avraham Avino? And he said, no, there's an Avraham Avino and there's, an, and there's also a Zusha. What's the matter? Who's who? Yeah, see, that's the example that I gave of stories. The same story told in a different way. Ah. Wow. And a Chabadnik might say, Zusha was asked, what would you be like if you were the Lubavitcher Rebbe? <laughs> and Zusha would say, ah, Zusha doesn't care about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Zusha just cares about what Zusha has to do. Awesome. Well, Barak, it was wonderful to speak with you, to see you again, although virtually. Yeah, uh, I, 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 can, I can vouch that when I listen to your podcasts or when I was at your Shabbat table, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to, to be around you, to be in your presence and to hear all the stories and the insights and just the teachings that you've learned and then are sharing. So thank you very much for, for doing all the work, for living up to your name and for taking your valuable time in the evening to come and speak with me and uh, for those listening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Shukrach. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening. I hope this episode brought you some really great value. If you enjoyed any of these episodes or would like to hear more, please leave me a review on Apple or Anchor Podcast. I'm always looking out for topics to learn and talk about, gifts to share, and value to bring to us all. For more updates, please check out SolomonEzra.com. That's S-O-L-O-M-O-N-E-Z-R-A. That's where you can also sign up for newsletters, read about blogs, and hear my different podcasts. Take care.